it has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. My dear friends, for the past six weeks, we have studied the essential nature of building a solid spiritual foundation. That solid foundation is found in the sanctuary, which is in heaven. For those six weeks, Pastor Carl Satalbasides has been along to help understand the sanctuary. You're an expert in the sanctuary. You've been studying in your PhD on these things. And so we're going to get right into this. We left off in our last show talking about the presence of God. Now, to our viewers, to our listeners, if you missed any of this series on solid foundations, I would encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com forward slash IIW Canada. There you'll find archives of the program and you can understand the context of the things we're talking about today. So where we left off, presence of God. His divine presence is revealed in his word. But throughout history, it would seem to me as we look at that history, that there have been great debates in the church about the divine presence of God. Let's talk about that. What are some of those debates and how can we avoid some of the pitfalls we've seen in that history? We're reminded in Exodus chapter 3 that when Moses saw the burning bush, he didn't automatically begin to worship it, that he only recognized the presence of God when God spoke to him from the midst of the bush. Just like in the Ten Commandments, God spoke out of the midst of the fire, and he says in Deuteronomy 4, 12 to 15, you didn't see any form, so don't construct anything material in order to equate that with my presence. So his presence comes through the word. Interestingly enough, uh, after the death of the disciples, you know that Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. Yes. And then uh, he began to uh, uh, initiate that, uh, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples. And he said that he would not partake of this until the kingdom would, would be restored again. And uh, in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, you know, as often as you do this, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When the disciples had passed off the scene of action, in, in a very short time, the presence of God began to be kind of equated with the emblems themselves. So in other words, with the bread and with the wine. Uh, there, were, there were actually two views as history was progressing. One, that they were becoming more and more associated with the bread and the wine so that there was a real presence in the bread and the wine. And others thought that perhaps it was just a memorial. Um, Augustine, 5th century theologian, was kind of ambivalent about this, uh, or I should say, you look at some of his writings and some of his writings seem to say memorial, but others are very strongly indicating that there's a real presence kind of in the bread. When you get to the 9th and 10th centuries, this had been debated for, for so long, um, they begin to settle the issue, and it was actually Thomas Aquinas the uh, famous Catholic theologian that really uh, settled the issue by stating that the presence, was, the presence of God was actually inside the wafer. And it was based on the ideas of Aristotle. 
Aristotle taught that there was, uh, that there was form and that, that there was matter in everything. Uh, that form was interpreted on the basis of Greek thinking. You couldn't tell what's inside the form. Some Christians would say that the form is your eternal soul, just to kind of switch uh, metaphors or analogies. Sure. So the form is your soul and then your body is matter. So when you think of the emblems, the form of the bread is the part of the bread that you can't see. It's the substance of the bread that is interpreted on the basis of Greek philosophy, which we studied a little bit earlier sure. in our presentations. And so Aquinas asserted that when the priest pronounces the words, this is my body, that the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine is allegedly transformed into the substance of the divine son of God, divine human son of, son of God, which is understood in Aristotelian terms. And so, um, so yes, the substance of God was then associated with, the essence of God, the being of God, was associated with the emblems there. And that carried on for a long time, and it led to, it led to certain problems whereby, okay, if the presence of God is actually in the, way, in, in the materials, well, we don't want to hand out the wine to the, to the parishioners because if we spill some of it, we would be spilling, you know, part of the presence of God. And so for, for many years, the wine was withheld, you know, from the people. And then when Luther came along, he went ahead and restored, you know, so, some of those things. And so just to, just to summarize, it, um, it morphed into a real presence being associated with the emblems themselves in the, in the Catholic Church, in the medieval church. And these concepts even had penetrated into the Reformation when we get into Luther and Zwingli. And so what you're saying, just so we're very clear, is we see that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper where the bread and the, the wine are actually symbolic, a memorial Correct. for our personal reflection. And really, if we get to the heart of it, as we partake of those emblems, they drive us to the word mm -hmm. that we might experience the presence of God through the word. Correct. But others develop the idea that the actual bread and the wine, for lack of a better word, become the very presence of God. Yeah. And so what we need to then look at, is that really what happens? Does it become the presence of God? Or have we already established where God's presence is? Mm -hmm. So where is God's presence? Is God's presence in the bread and the wine? Or is it somewhere else? Let's, let's pick this up with, with Luther versus Zwingli. One of the saddest aspects of the Reformation was the Marburg Colloquy of 1529 in which Luther debated with Zwingli about the nature of the presence. For Luther, he believed that there was actually a real presence in the emblem. Some people call it consubstantiation, uh, whether that was a term that Luther had, you know, had invented or associated with, you know, I don't know at this point. But for sure, he did believe in a real presence, whether it was in the bread or around the bread or somewhere associated with the bread. He believed that based on the words of Jesus, this is my body. Zwingli would counter and say, well, in John chapter 6, uh, you know, the words that I speak, verse 63, they are spirit and they are life. Besides, Luther, that the, the presence can't be in the bread because Jesus is in heaven. So how can the presence be in the bread if Christ is in heaven? Therefore, Luther, our, our Zwingli opted for a memorial. 
Now, Zwingli didn't really develop this whole idea or a theology of the presence of God based on the sanctuary. And this is what I'm studying right now with the doctoral dissertation is I'm looking at the interpretation of the presence of God in greater, in greater worship. Uh, and so even though Luther rejected the philosophy of the church, he was still associating the presence of God with, with the emblems themselves in some way. So Swingley was correct. He just has not developed his theology of the presence of God uh, from the sanctuary, from that picture. Now, if we go to the sanctuary in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, there's one seated on the throne there in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, and they actually end up worshiping him. They cast their crowns at a specific location. Yes. So they don't, they're not casting their crowns in every direction as if God was ubiquitous in such a way. No, the, there is one seated on the throne. He is there in a specific location. The lamb later comes in in Revelation chapter 5, and there is a magnificent worship service there in praise and honor to the one seated on the throne and, and, to, and to the lamb. So the presence of God is there in that sanctuary. Now, is there a real presence here as well? Yeah, he's called, yeah, it's called, he's called the Holy Spirit. And if you remember in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, as, as John sees the lamb there, in verse 6, he saw a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes into the earth, how does he manifest himself? We covered this previously in another, in another session, but yes. in the letters to the churches, it was Jesus that originated the message, and then at the end of the message, we need to take heed and listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the book of Hebrews is the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, um, it quotes Psalm 97, and it says, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. So the Holy Spirit, His presence is here. It's an invisible presence. We, we cannot detect Him, but He is here where two or more are gathered together. Jesus says, I am here in the midst. So He is among us. So God talks to us in a personal way. And this is what the sanctuary brings out. Yes. When He created Adam and Eve, He spoke with them face to face. When Jesus was here with His disciples, how did He speak with them? He spoke face to face in the same way. That's right. And that when He comes again and we get to behold Him face to face... Will he not be speaking with us face to face? That's right. And so the reason I mention this is because um, there are all kinds of methods of spirituality today which say that we can kind of recite things over and over and over and over and over again as methods of, uh, of prayer or methods of spirituality. And those all assume that the presence of God is within you. And by basically going through those, those rituals and those routines, you are making room for basically the enemy to speak to you there because God doesn't speak to you in that manner. He speaks very clearly in His Word in a very personable way. Uh, the whole idea of Christ being in us, Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes. The issue of the presence of God is central to that because if the presence of God is equated with nature, then you read these passages and you say, hey, Christ in you. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm, you know, a chip off the old block and that, I'm, that I have parts of the divine nature that only belong to God alone? Right. No. Along with the sanctuary, there's another very important theme that helps us in this area of spirituality that is associated with the presence of God, and that is the covenant. Okay. 
And it is the covenant that helps to answer the question as to how God relates with us. For instance, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 8, yes. you find the new covenant there. Yes. And it answers the question as to what it really means for me to know God, to have a relationship with Him, and to, to have Him in me. In verse, in verse um, 10, it says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. In other words, have a relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. How is it that we can know him? It is when we allow God to place his words in our minds and in our hearts where we can become transformed and then we become, we become like him. It is in that way that he then becomes, comes to live inside of us. So the issue of the presence of God is really broad and deep and has a, a very large effect on, on corporate worship, on spirituality, and a whole ton of other issues. So God's presence, clearly in the sanctuary, revealed in his word, which is interesting because uh, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the word of God being living and active mm -hmm. and powerful. It is revealed to us in his word. How does the sanctuary reveal the character of God? And, and, and you alluded to something because we've talked about the Father, we've talked about the Son, we've talked about the Holy Spirit. How does the sanctuary reveal that character of God, this three-in-one and one-in-three? I want to focus on Jesus just for a moment because I don't want to let this point go. Okay. Um, I remember reading the Bible for the first time, and in John chapter 1, verse 29, yes. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And, and I hadn't had any Bible training before, and I'm wondering, why, why is he calling him a lamb? Yes. And of course, within the backdrop of the sanctuary, it makes sense because those lambs were offered, you know, the burnt offering was going on every day, morning and evening. They typified the fact that someone would come. And so the, uh, the imagery of the lamb represents the humanity of Christ. And of course, he had to become human before he could ultimately die on the cross. We were in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. So, so he was born into this world. He is the Lamb of God. Yes. And after his ascension, he became our high priest. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John sees a lamb as it had been slain. Mm -hmm. And he's our great high priest there in the heavenly sanctuary. So in this dispensation of time, uh, and, and the imagery of the Lamb is replete in the book of Revelation, I think 27 or 28 times yes. that is mentioned. And so, um, so here you have Jesus in this period of earth's history where he is our mediator, which means that he's still human at this point. Now, the thing that really struck me was in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, and maybe we'll read the first three verses because... Revelation 22 is after the sin problem has all been dealt with. It's all said and done. The and earth is made new again. Correct. We're dwelling with God. Yeah, actually, let me just read verse 3. It says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. So after the sin problem has all been taken care of, it still mentions him as a lamb. Hmm. But in the Old Testament passages, the lambs were sacrificed, pointing forward to the death of Christ on the cross 
and also his high priestly ministry, but now it still refers to him as a lamb. And what that tells me is that when Jesus chose to become incarnated, that this was not something that was just going to happen for time, but that this was something that was going to happen for eternity. If wow. you can wrap your brain around that. So this is the great I am. Yes. He is the great I am who has existed from the days of eternity, as Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, in fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. I mean, we can't even comprehend what that means in yeah. fellowship with eternity way before the earth was ever created, the complexity of that relationship. And then the, the introduction of the universe, you know, by the word of God, the heavens were made. And then he creates you and I, and then all of a sudden we fall into sin. And this God decides to become incarnated, not just for time, but for eternity. That's an amazing thought. You know, there are some people that are wondering, do I have any value or do I have any worth? Perhaps, you know, some people have been told, you know, you're no good, you're worthless. Tell me, what kind of being would do that? Yeah. What kind of being would do that? And just so we don't, and let's dwell on that for just a few moments longer. Let's linger here. To the person who has been told that, you're worthless. You have no value. Maybe a, someone has been told they're an accident. Mm -hmm. Christ says you're no accident. And Christ says, you're so worthy that Christ incarnated himself, mm -hmm. became the lamb for not just a moment of time and then stepped back into his role, but actually will be the lamb for eternity mm. in the future. Amen. And in fact, was for eternity in the past because the book of Revelation says he was the lamb of God slain from the, foundation of, from the, the foundation of the world. And so the sanctuary teaches us this interaction, a concept that is difficult to understand, but a powerful interaction where you have the Father on the throne. You have the Son, the Lamb, on the throne. You have the Spirit who is interacting personally with humanity through the delivery of God's Word, through convicting hearts and leading them along. Mm -hmm. And it all leads us to the church. How does the sanctuary teach us about the church? That word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia, the called out ones. God's calling us out of this confusion. And in fact, the book of Revelation talks about it being Babylon, the wine of Babylon, religious confusion. God is calling people out into his church. How does the sanctuary help explain the nature of the church, salvation, sin, spirituality, how does that all come together in the sanctuary? Chris, there was a text that we talked about in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, where the enemy said that, um, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation yes. in the sides of the north. Now, in that mount of the congregation, this is Isaiah chapter 14, 13, we discovered that that's talking about the sanctuary through the Hebrew words har, moed, which are associated with the sanctuary in various places. And so um, in the sanctuary, you have a connection between heaven and earth. So what I'm going to do is, as, as, it's, as I think the scriptures are doing to me, is expand our vision of what the church is to include the church in heaven. Okay. 
So the church, you mentioned Ecclesia being called out. Well, you know, there was war in heaven. That's right. And so this is where this whole thing began up there. Yes. And they had to make a stand. They had to, they had to be called out who's on the Lord's side. Yes. And they, and they went ahead and took their stand. And so here the enemy is trying to sell his version of the great controversy in the mount of the congregation. Yes. Look at Hebrews 12 for a moment because you have, you have further integration between the church in heaven and the church on earth in Hebrews 12. Uh, in verse 22, it says, you're come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Mm -hmm. uh, it says, the heavenly Jerusalem, and who else is there? An innumerable company of angels. They're part of, they're part of the church, actually. They're part, they're part of the church. That's where you're coming. You're coming to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. In other words, the firstborn ones whose names are not written on the church books necessarily here on earth, but the ones that are written in heaven. Yes. So the sanctuary is combining earth and heaven, which means I think we ought to expand our concept of what the church is to include the church in heaven as well. Let me share some other, uh, some other principles here. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Okay. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Yes. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So the church is not just one family here on earth. It says that there is a family in heaven. That, and so we're part of the family in heaven as well, the angelic host in heaven. Uh, something interesting in the book of Revelation, and I've read this text so often, I, I couldn't believe that you know, it, got, it got by me. Do you remember when John was about to worship the angel? Yes. And sit at his feet? It's yes. mentioned once in Revelation 19, but then also Revelation 22. Yes. Let's go to that one, Revelation 22. It says, Then saith he unto me, See that thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren, the prophets. He says, Look, John, you and I are brethren. <laughs> An amazing thought. So, uh, so the church is not just the church on earth, but the church in heaven as well. And this has an impact on our definition of sin, you know. Um, the Bible talks about that sin is the transgression of the law. That's the only definition of sin that will work, you know, because angels didn't sin because God had predestined them to sin. No. Angels didn't sin because there was some defect in the programming. They sinned because they deliberately chose to go in the opposite direction. Lucifer, those that followed Lucifer, what you're talking about, they made an active choice, which is, by the way, a side note, gives us great hope because God has created us with the same free will that the angels had. Correct. And so this, this is, uh, you have the universal church, yeah. which includes heaven, which includes the angels of heaven. Correct. Helps us understand that the universal nature of sin is that it is the transgression of God's law, which ultimately leads us away from a sanctuary foundation, a sanctuary framework. Correct, right. This means that I can't blame Adam. Even Adam, I mean, well, he sinned because he deliberately chose to go in the wrong direction. That's right. Now, you and I have inherited tendencies that lead us in the wrong direction. However, the grace of God is sufficient for us, and I'm, I'm glad for the fact that God doesn't condemn us simply for being born that he sends information and Jesus says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Yes. Uh, and so he holds us accountable when we are sufficiently illuminated and we choose 
uh, in the face of that evidence to go in the wrong in the wrong direction. Which is why, of course, Proverbs four says the path of the just is as the shining light that shines brighter and brighter unto a perfect day. God expects us to live up to his presence, which has been revealed in his word, which illuminates us to help get us on that path of coming into a personal relationship with him. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Carl, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. We have just a few minutes left and I want to head towards something that's very important. When we talk about someone's personal worship, whether that be in a corporate setting in a church or whether that be in a devotional time mm-hmm. sitting in their living room, mm-hmm. how does the sanctuary inform that worship? The sanctuary informs that worship by, by, by telling us that the main vehicle of God's presence is His Word. Historically, as we covered earlier, the presence of God was associated with the, with the wafer. Yes. Do you know today with the charismatic movement, it's associated with music. And so they even call it musical transubstantiation. So when people hear the music, they, they automatically equate the experience of that with the presence of God. So the sanctuary actually helps us by helping us to realize that it's really God's words that are central. You know, in that, in that scene in Revelation 4 and 5, John was so anxious and he was so troubled, he was weeping because he wanted to know what was in that book. Yes, there was music up there. Yes, it was a great scene. Yes, there were a lot of things going on, but he wanted to know what was in that book. And that brings us right down to our conclusion that cannot be missed. The presence of God is in the sanctuary. That presence is revealed in his word. Our personal worship in our home and in our devotional life should be founded on the word. When we go to our church to gather with God's people, that church should be founded on the word. We cannot drum up the presence of God. Correct. We can't call down the presence of God. Correct. God has revealed himself in his word and has given this word as our gift And preaching to should us. have the central place because that's how God reveals himself. The proclamation of the word, Amen. building, our spiritual house on a solid foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us the solid foundation, the solid foundation of your word, where your presence is revealed from the sanctuary. May we found everything on it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My dear friend, A journey with Jesus is founded on his word. The sanctuary is where God's presence is and his presence is revealed through the word. Today, I want to offer you the DVD set of this series that it might help you to dive deep in God's word, to draw close to Jesus and be ready for him when he comes again. Here's the information you need to receive today's offer. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. That's www.itiswrittencanada.ca. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. 
That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. Call anytime. Lines are open 24 hours daily. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H 7B4. My dear friend, you are of infinite worth in the eyes of God. Jesus, whose presence is in the sanctuary for eternity as the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, slain for your sin and for mine. Pastor Carl, thank you so much for being with us and helping us see God's presence in the sanctuary. It's been great, Chris. Friend, I hope you've entered into that relationship with Jesus. I ask that you join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.